episode we uh, had technical difficulties beyond repair yesterday with our guest over in Ireland I'm pretty sure the geographic location had something to do with that it's just me today that's really important if you're watching the live feed that you follow the instructions and that is that if you're going to have a question for me that you want handled toward the end of the show today to make sure that the first couple uh, words in the uh, question are in all caps if you do that, I'll be more likely to see it out of my one good eye. It just so happens that the stuff on the screen is on the same side of my good eye. So give me a shot at it anyway, and I'll do my best to get your questions answered today. Today we're talking about lacto-fermentation uh, as a food preservation technique, as a flavor enhancement technique, and as a health benefit technique. And we're going to be talking about it from the standpoint of how it applies to us as preppers, permaculturists, homesteaders, gardeners, etc. And I will say when it comes to asking questions, if you ask a question that has absolutely nothing to do with what I just said, then you probably won't, not definitely won't, probably won't get an answer to it in today's show. Uh, when I go into these topics, these shows tend to be quite long. And if I start segueing into things about tropical fish or guns or something like that, it kind of derails things. So I try, try to ask you to stick to the topic today, at least loosely associated with the topic. We're going to talk about a ton of stuff today. Uh, I wanted to do this show for a couple reasons. One, it's fun. And I don't just mean doing it's fun and eating it's fun. I mean the whole topic is fun. It's nothing serious at all. Uh, number two, we did recently talk about salt and uh, its role in human history, and this is a big part of it. And, and it what I've noticed about this subject, when you talk to people about this, especially kind of one-on-one -on -one where you can actually see the reaction rather than, you know, broadcasting to tons of people like we're doing today, there is a fear. There's a fear. I'll do it wrong. It'll kill me. It'll grow out of the jar and come to kill me in my sleep or something. I'll, I'll start out with today. Millions of illiterate people all around the world do this every day. And humans have been doing this for over 10,000 years. It is one of the safest mechanisms for food storage, and you are not going to eat something that's gone wrong. Your, 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 your taste buds and your nose holes will not allow you to do it, trust me. And there's some stuff that people make fermented that, that's completely safe that you probably still wouldn't eat. Some of the stuff done with fish in parts of the world or things like that are pretty, ugh, I'll just say it that way. So the stuff we're going to be talking about today, you can do this. You can lacto-ferment meats. You can lacto-ferment and cure fish. You can do it with dairy, i.e. like kefir or yogurt or something like that. Today's topic, though, is going to be about fruits and vegetables. And when I say fruits, for today anyway, I'm talking about like what I mentioned before about this earlier this week. When I say fruits, I'm talking about garden fruits. A tomato is a fruit. A pepper is a fruit. I'm really not going to get into, like, trying to lacto-ferment apples. Though I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could. But it's not something I have any experience with, so I'm going to stick to what I know, as I usually do. We're going to talk about the nutritional benefits today, the history of this, why it's useful, 
It's contribution to being self-sufficient. The basic process of how to do this, it's so simple. There's really three ingredients, right, um, to any lacto-fermentation. There is the thing you're fermenting. So that could be one, like sauerkraut just being cabbage. It could be a whole bunch of them. But it's whatever you're fermenting, salt and time. And I guess water as well, if you want to call water an ingredient. It's that simple. And this is what I love about lacto-fermentation. If you learn how to do it, and you might use, I'll give you a book today that's a great book. Probably the single best book for getting started out of nowhere with it. Um, but once you understand how to do this, you'll realize that there's basically two basic procedures. And anything you want to lacto-ferment that's worth lacto-fermenting, you just use whichever one works better. And you won't need a recipe if you'll trust yourself, right? I mean, my grandmother used to make fermented pickles. She called them crock pickles. I'll tell you how she did that. And I never saw her once look at a recipe, never once. In fact, some of the stuff I'm going to tell you to do today is, is far more advanced than my grandma ever did. And I'm basically only doing it to instill confidence in you so you give it a shot. I think this is something that if you're a homesteader, a prepper, a permaculturist, or a foodie, you should do. Notice I didn't say you need to do it. I don't like telling people what they need to do or what they have to do, but I think you should. I think you should at least consider it. It will. Uh, it's one of those skills that once you develop it, you start to think about, well, what else can I do with this? And I love stuff like that, and I've said it so many times that food is the single most important component of preparedness. Uh, you could probably argue water against food, and yeah, but I've seldom seen a time where somebody can't get some water other than major natural disasters or something like that. And if your whole house is gone in that, you, you're back to the same problem. Day to day, the thing that people run out of and most need is food, and we all eat every day. So food and water, put them side by side because we're going to use water for today, but it's not something we should ignore uh, and, 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 and do the stupid prepper thing. I got me a gun. I got me some ammo and I can get all the food I want. Yeah, no, you can't. You'll end up dead. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is JM Bullion. Um, I have been recommending that people stack silver as part of their preparedness plan and start, uh, as part of, um, of their wealth assurance program since I started this show. I've always re uh, recommended somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold. And uh, that recommendation has never changed. Even as I've really insisted that people consider things like Bitcoin in their portfolio, I haven't backed off my recommendation on precious metal. I think there's a place for a lot of this stuff. And I think that silver and gold have a you know, huge history. About as long as we've had civilization, uh, they've been monetary instruments. And they're certainly worth making sure that they're part of your wealth assurance program. If you're going to invest in silver and gold, why not invest with a company that's been part of this podcast for well over a decade now? We have worked with JM Bullion. They give a discount to MSB members, uh, and they do all their shipping for free. And if there ever is a problem, I can talk to the president of the company directly. That was actually a requirement for me to be able to take on a precious metal sponsor. I actually turned down two. Uh, large silver gold houses that you've heard the names of. They're on Fox News all the time because they would not give me a high enough level contact. Next up today is Ridge, as in the Ridge Wallet. These guys have been a sponsor of ours for about five years. That's a long time in podcasting. 
They've turned into a great EDC company. The gear looks great, works great, and they do a discount of 10% for members of the MSB. So check them out today at Ridge.com. When they started out, there were nothing but the wallets. Now they have a, just a tremendous amount of awesome EDC gear. So check them out and make them part of your EDC uh, right away, man. Get, go ahead and get some gear from uh, Ridge and make sure if you're a member, you get your discount. I can tell you they're top-notch. I've been carrying the same wallet they sent me when they applied to be a sponsor five years ago for five years. The only thing that ever happened is one of the screws fell out of it. And uh, when they send it to you, they send you a tool and some extra screws in case that happens. What more could you ask for? All right, let's get into it. Let's start off with lactofermentation. What exactly is that? What are the most basics of it? So in any any vegetable, you have some level of sugars in that vegetable, even if you don't think of it as being really sweet. And when we look at something like um, alcoholic fermentation, we're introducing yeast instead of bacterium. And the yeast eat the sugar, and they poop out CO2 and ethyl alcohol. And that's not what we're doing, right? That, that's what people, when you say fermentation, that's the first place the mind goes. We take something with a lot of sugar in it, let's say grapes, and we squeeze them out and we introduce a yeast of a known strain and then it makes alcohol and it converts. So the wine starting out as a sweet juice ends up a lot more dry to the palate and it contains that wonderful substance that gives us a little buzz in our head. This is a far different thing. We're using lactobacillus and we'll even talk about how we can introduce uh, a known strain or uh, even if it's not a known strain, just kickstart things by using a prior ferment later on today. But in most instances, if we're using vegetables from our garden, lactobacillus, the various strains, are everywhere. And probably the easiest and the place most people start with fermentation is making sauerkraut. And if we use the outer leaves of cabbage and we put it in with the other leaves of cabbage and we make it, there's enough lactobacillus in there. But what they're basically doing is they're converting the sugars in whatever we're fermenting into acid. And that acid raises the, or actually lowers the pH, makes it more acidic. In combination with salt, it inhibits the growth and basically kills the potential for growth of bad bacteria, things that can make us sick. And so, again, it's been around forever. The earliest recorded use of uh, fermentation this way was in Mesopotamia, Egypt, in those areas thousands and thousands of years ago. And in fact, fermentation itself seems to come from that, you know, that cradle of, uh, of civilization. The old, now this is not lacto fermentation, but the oldest known written thing that has ever been deciphered, and we know what it says on it, that we have a clay tablet, somebody wrote on it, is actually a recipe for beer from, uh, from Mesopotamia. And so right along with that, they discovered this process of, of lacto-fermentation, and they didn't know what it was. And I'm going to tell you that it wasn't until quite recently, as far as human history uh, is concerned, that people even figured out exactly what was happening. It, it's only a couple hundred years since we've even known what a bacteria is, right? Uh, back to the work of like Louis Pasteur and, and things like that, right? So... People were doing this without even knowing exactly what they were doing. And what happened is man discovered a long time ago, if you put salt on things, it lasts longer. 
Sometimes I think when they when they dry something out with it completely with a dry salting method, they figured out pretty quick the, the moisture that was removed is a big part of this. But what this resulted in is, well, if we take the salt, we put it in water and we take the food and put it in the water, then that does the same thing and it makes the food last longer. So just people being people trying to figure stuff out. How do I make this stuff stick around longer? And if they left it in there long enough, it started to smell a little funky and taste a little sour. And it, it, it reminds me of the, the, the funny saying about the oyster. He was a brave man who ate the first oyster. Oysters are delicious, but if you had never seen an oyster before, nobody told you it was okay, and you cracked up an oyster open. Now, I don't mean a steamed one. I mean a raw one and looked at that thing. Look at a giant loogie. Eating that took some gumption. Yeah, yeah, this otter thing ate one, but I don't know if I want to. And I imagine the first people that tried fermented vegetables or fermented anything were like, ah, uh, not sure. But somebody got hungry enough. Somebody ate it, said that ain't so bad. People probably looked at him and go, well, if he don't flip around on the ground, start foaming at the mouth in a couple of days or less, uh, this is probably okay. And, and, and this technique, I was going to say technology, and technology might be the right, has, has co-evolved across the whole globe. It's not like just because the oldest records of it are from Egypt and Mesopotamia that it came from there and then spread everywhere. We can see that different versions of fermentation using salt, water, and thyme um, have been developed organically all over the world. The, the work of Dr. Price, Dr. Weston A. Price, shows this in that when he explored all these indigenous cultures all over the, the world, uh, you know, back at the, the beginning of the last century and documented this. And he found these people to be incredibly healthy, have great teeth. He was a dentist who so was interested in that. And teeth are a big indicator of human health, especially when people live in a place where there ain't no dentist. And, and maybe there ain't no toothbrushes uh, and toothpaste. And yet these people like great health in their bodies, in their teeth, in, in, in their lives. And all of them had at least one staple in their diet that was fermented food. So let's uh, let's keep going with this. And K Bonk, I got your question. Remember, guys, uh, all caps. That will that will make it more likely that I'll get your question if you are in the live feed. So what's what's the science behind it then? Well, the science is again that this bacterium is everywhere, and it can grow in a salt rich environment. Now, when I say salt rich, I'm saying in a brine, we're looking for somewhere between two to five percent is the rule and one and a half percent is enough. If we go much more than that, first of all, it gets too salty and people don't like it. So your own taste buds tell you a lot about this. But the other thing is we get enough salt, we'll even inhibit the lactobacillus. So we don't want to go crazy with the salt. And I think that um, <laughs> Cletus says the science says this is dangerous. It actually doesn't. You'll have a hard time finding anybody except a, a, a nano weenie who wants to cry about this. This has been done for so long uh, and is, again, done every day all over the world. And you won't find reports of people killing themselves from lactofermentation. The science, again, though, is, is basically that when you create this environment, this anaerobic environment with salt and you have lactobacillus bacterium present, that they will break down sugars and they will convert that sugar to acid. And the combination of the salinity, 
the anaerobic environment in the absence of oxygen, plus the acid preserves the food and it gives it that tangy, twangy flavor. That's, that's, that's what I mean by the science behind it. The benefits are pretty obvious, but let's start with the first one. What's the number one reason people eat sauerkraut? It's like, gee, I want to, I want to gin up my biome in my guts. Some people, I guess, but the main reason people eat sauerkraut is it tastes good. It alters the flavor of food so that it tastes great if you like the particular flavor. It is a, a flavor profile that is similar to when we pickle something with vinegar. And I want to be clear about something today. There's a lot of people that are enthousi enthusiastic about lacto-fermentation. They basically crap all over any kind of pickle made with vinegar. They're two totally different processes. They do two, two totally different things. One's a hell of a lot faster. Vinegar pretty much stores forever, and salt pretty much stores forever. I find them to be equals as far as being things that can be used by preppers and homesteaders. And I find it to be personal preference as to what you do, when you do it, and what you do with different things. Like, I'm going to talk about fermenting mushrooms today, and it's a little tiny bit complicated compared to typical things. So a person that wants to preserve mushrooms, has access to a lot of them, may choose just to do a vinegar pickle. And I don't think there's anything wrong with either one of them. Um, but you don't get the biome enhancement with a vinegar pickle. When we convert this stuff, this lactobacillus, not only do we end up with the acid at the end that helps preserve things, that gives us the flavor, but the population of the bacteria explodes. And they get really scared. Oh, you're bacteria. Yes. And you are more bacteria than you are human cells right now. And these are the beneficial bacteria and not all of them, but there's a misconception that if I eat a lacto fermented food, when that lacto fermented product goes into my stomach and it's in there with the hydrochloric acid and it's all being churned around, it all dies anyway. And none of it makes it to your intestines. This is not true. Um, there are some lactobacillus species that will not survive the exposure to the acid in your stomach, plus the bile from that part of your digestion. But a large portion of the species will. They do get into the small intestine. They attach to your intestinal walls. They increase the beneficial bacteria in your intestine. And this is actually a big part of nutrient absorption and the human digestive process. So we have been talked into sanitizing everything. We've sanitized ourselves into poor health. This is the same thing I talk about when I talk about fish tanks, right? So when we sanitize a fish tank, we're going to have pathogens. When we have a living tank, a dirt bottom, we have all types of bacteria and fungi and other things living in that tank. Then we end up where life balances. So think about it that way. We are enhancing the gut biome is one of the things. And it also, of course, extends the shelf life of food. Uh, far beyond what it would be without it. One of my favorite things to make, and I'll talk about a bit, is salsa. And the reason I like to do that is we grow a ton of tomatoes and peppers and, 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 and cucumbers. I actually make cucumber salsa. And it really is more like salsa with cucumbers in it. Um, and the thing is, you make a batch of that, you throw it in the refrigerator, and it lasts for, say, a week before it starts to just not be so nice anymore. If you if you add vinegar to it, you can extend that, and that's okay, but really the only way to really extend it other than fermentation is to can it, and now we're cooking the hell out of it, and it's not as nice to me as a lacto-fermentation. So 
we're able to extend the shelf life of food, whether it's a refrigerator or a cool pantry or something like that. So that's why we would want to do it, the main reasons. Nutritional benefits um, are, are great because of what they do for the biome. But there's also a sustainability component to it. When we throw away food, we're wasting a resource. By coming up with ways to extend the shelf life of food, we're making everything that we do more sustainable. We're also encouraging ourselves to actually grow our own food. Because one of the reasons that people stop gardening is they get bad results on some things and massive results on other things. Then they realize, what the hell do I do with all of this stuff? And so they end up throwing the food away, they give it away, they don't pick it, and and they quit gardening. And you you are a much more sustainable prepper uh, or sustainable permaculturist or gardener if you take up and learn how to do this. And then you'll find yourself specifically growing specific things to do this with that maybe you wouldn't grow otherwise. One of mine is daikon radish. I'm not a massive fan of daikon. I'm okay with it. You know, it's pretty good on certain things with like a julienne peeler or something like that. But if you if you cut it into like sticks, like you think of from carrot sticks, and you lacto-ferment it, you know, then you can set that aside. You can use it as needed. Um, and I do keep most of my ferments in the refrigerator for full disclosure. It doesn't stop fermentation, but it slows it down to, you know, like molasses in January speed. And uh, so I think there's a lot of benefits there. And again, the, the flavor is a huge benefit if you appreciate the flavor. Now, what I would tell you is there's a lot of people that say, I don't like it. And, you know, it's, it's for instance, it's my wife will say, I don't like dill. What she means is she doesn't like dill pickles. And I've had her eat other things. She, oh, that's pretty good, you know, and oh, I put dill in that. Or, oh, that's also pickled. The heavy vinegar dill pickle flavor she doesn't care for. And I, I, I like to try to put people in the same mindset I do when I talk about lacto-fermented food as when I talk about, like, beer. Because I don't like beer. That's like saying you don't like food. You have to like, you probably could find – now, if you don't drink because you don't drink, that's different. But I'm just saying, if you tried enough beers, you'd probably find one you did like. Or if you tried enough wines, you'd probably find one you did like. If you tried enough cheeses, you'd find one that you did like. For me, it would be all of them. My wife, in particular, doesn't like really assertive, heavy flavors. So while she likes cheese, something like a blue cheese, is she's not about that until you mix it with garlic and put it all over french fries or something like that. Um, so you might find that some people would prefer a ferment that stopped a little bit earlier. And so it's not quite as funky, but if you start with a mild funk, right, you develop a taste for it. I think there's a lot of us that when we taste something totally different than what we're accustomed to, we immediately kind of throw up shields like we shouldn't eat that. And I think there's actually an evolutionary reason for that. You can trust your taste buds when you're in nature most of the time. Most things that are not good have an off-putting flavor or some sort of a response. Now, be careful with that because you can go out and find things that don't taste like crap that will kill you. But in general, if something's not, there's a, you know, a sensation to the mouth or the tongue or a flavor or smell, something's off-putting. That's how people survive without killing themselves by walking in the woods, eating things and dying. If you ever watch a deer walk through the woods, there's plenty of stuff in there that's toxic to that deer and deer just doesn't eat it. It's, it's sense of smell is much better than yours. But I think the fact that things that are 
dramatically different than what we're accustomed to, kind of triggering us as an evolutionary response to help us with that. So I think if you kind of ease into it, you may find something that you didn't think you liked, you love. And I found that to be the case for a lot of people. All right, so let's talk about some food examples, some just some stuff, and then I'm going to give you kind of the how-to and some things that maybe people don't think about doing with lacto-fermentation. Everybody's doing sauerkraut and pickles. And I think this is detrimental in some ways. I think, let me get, let me back up on that. I think it's a great place to start, assuming you like sauerkraut and or pickles, because they're so easy to do and do right. So it's a good entry point. But if you don't like pickled cucumber or you don't like sauerkraut, and so the minute you think fermentation, that's what you think about, then that can prevent you from get, having an on-ramp at all. So, one, again, my, one of my favorite things to make, and i got a half gallon of it going right now, is fermented cucumber salsa. And if you ask me for a recipe for that, you know what I'm going to say. Make it however you want it. But I, I'll tell you what we do. I go and I pick a whole shitload of jalapenos. I pick a few sweet peppers as well. And I pick a cucumber, and I pick a bunch of tomatoes. I cut it all up. Now, I'll tell you one thing that I do different with salsa than I think most people do. I use a food processor for my tomatoes. And if they're bigger ones, I cut them in half before I put them in there. It just saves a ton of time. And I just use my little mini food processor for this. And I do them in batches. But when they're done, even though having the vegetables give off moisture and be the brine is a good thing in fermentation, I find that tomatoes produce just a massive amount of liquid, too much. So I dump my tomatoes into a strainer and I just kind of, I don't squeeze them. I just kind of shake it around in the sink and drain off the excess and I just mix it all into a bowl and I then add salt and we'll talk about how to determine how much and I add it to a jar. I also use cilantro in that and um, I put it in a jar and I do the fermentation process we'll talk about in a minute. The beauty of this salsa is it works really, really well. You're bringing in so many different vegetables. And I usually make my salt, you can use onions of any kind. I usually use green onions, and that's because I grow the crap out of them in my aquaponic systems. Um, so, I, And I like the mild flavor of green onions. If you like red onion, use red onion. And I always use lots of garlic. How much? I don't know. It, 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 I might do a batch of this like I just did. And it's really about equal amount of cucumber and tomato. And then, you know, it's maybe 10% is jalapenos and maybe, you know, 10% is everything else. Like there's one big sweet pepper in there and, and you end up with a half gallon of salsa, which is a lot of salsa. I might, like if I go through that or I end up looking at the garden and go, gee, there's a bunch more stuff. Why don't I make some more salsa so I have another batch ready? And I go out there and, I, and my tomatoes production's in decline. And there's a lot of sweet peppers and cucumbers. The next batch may be weighted more towards sweet pepper and cucumber. That's okay. Or I may even make it with green tomatoes, which are actually pretty good when done this way. You just can't, you can't hamstring yourself with this because, again, this has been done for thousands of years. Do you really think the illiterate person that's making up a ferment right now in some part of the world is reading a recipe book? Or they're using what they have and preserving it based on their own intuition of what's going to taste well for them. But salsa, 
garlic. When I make salsa, I chop garlic up and add it to the salsa. And salsa is probably the one place I don't do what I'm about to say. Almost everything else, when I'm making lard, like it's not a relish because Rachel's saying relish right now. So, like, yeah, you can make a fermented relish. And salsa is really kind of a a type of relish Um, until you've got the small stuff. But if I'm doing like an escabeche, which would be for, you know, classic would be jalapeno, carrot uh, and onion. I'm always going to use garlic and I throw whole cloves of garlic in for the flavor, but because then I have whole cloves of fermented garlic. So I've done like a whole like, you know, quart or a pint of just garlic cloves and they're delicious. But to me, a real simple thing is if I'm doing, let's say I was doing a ferment of uh, carrot and daikon, that's a great ferment. Throw half a dozen, dozen cloves of garlic in there, not even cut up. As you're using it, then you can fish that garlic out because that garlic goes good with everything. It's good for cooking. It's good in salads. It's good to flavor stuff. It's just awesome. So if you're not fermenting garlic, do you even care about your your life? I I think I I start to doubt that. Fermented garlic is one of the most delicious things out there. Eggplant is something I haven't done yet. But um, what I'll do is when I do an eggplant ferment, I'll uh, record a, a procedure recipe, maybe do a video on it for you, because I grow a ton of eggplant. And I've just learned that it, it actually, I've always worried that it wouldn't make a great ferment because it's kind of spongy and all. It turns out it makes a great ferment. And the key with eggplant, though, is most stuff that you ferment, you will either salt it directly and then let that, like a, like a, a sauerkraut, will salt that directly and then put, the cabbage into the fermentation vessel and it'll sweat out. It'll pull the water out and the water that comes out of the vegetable becomes the brine or we clean the vegetables, rinse them off, what have you. And remember not scrubbing. We don't want to remove all the bacteria. The bacteria is the point, but we'll put that into a jar and then we'll mix up a brine, which is salt and water and we'll pour it into the jar. And we'll look to do an average of two to 5% on the salt for that. Right on the base against the volume of the water, which is going to put you on the bottom end. You want to be about a tablespoon of salt to a quart of water. That's where you for for a straight brine, and um, that's about 17 grams. Because here's I'll, I'll give you that right now, and we'll talk about it again later. The problem with this recipe says to use a tablespoon of salt or two tablespoons of salt. What salt? Rock salt? Finely ground salt? Coarse salt, kosher salt, right? You can use any salt you want, except you don't want salt that's iodine salt. So your your table salt that has iodine in it, and you don't want to use salt that has like anti-caking things in it. So any pure, normal salt you can use. But there's different coarseness. So if you take a tablespoon of kosher salt, a tablespoon of uh, table salt, and a tablespoon of something more like a rock salt, and you weigh them on a scale, they're all going to weigh differently, even with the same volume, because of the space between the particles. So if you go 17 to 20 grams of salt to the quart of water, you'll be good. Now, back to this and how this applies to the eggplant. Eggplant has so much moisture in it. And now some of the eggplant I grow, you don't have to worry about it. But some of the stuff that comes out when you sweat that eggplant, like in a classic big piece of eggplant, it's not good. Think ashtray flavor, right? That's why I don't like the big eggplants. So what you do with eggplant is you salt it, you sweat it, you dry it. You flavor it with whatever herbs or what you want with it. You put it in the jar, and then you add a brine. 
And that's the key to doing eggplant right. So I say that from research on this one. I haven't done it yet, but I'm going to do it. And I am looking forward to it because I grow the hell out of that pink tongue Asian eggplant. And I always say, even with uh, using it a lot in the summer and even with dehydration, I always have more of it than I can use. Uh, next up will be mushrooms. This is another one I haven't done yet, but I have cracked the code in what to do. You do not want to ferment raw mushroom. And if you cook mushrooms, well, any of the bacteria on them, you've killed. So how do we do this? We cook the mushrooms in, in hot water just until they're just done. We take the mushrooms out of the water, drain all the water off of them. We chop them up into whatever size we want them for fermentation. We salt them and let that draw more moisture out because mushrooms hold a lot of, of moisture. We put them into a jar. We make a brine. Again, 2 to 5%. 2% is kind of the side to err on. Um, you can make things saltier, but you can't make them less salty, right? And then we need to do something called a pitchback, which I'll talk about more later. But all we do is take some brine from a ferment that worked when we set up the ferment for the mushrooms and pitch it in. So if we have a sauerkraut or a fermented pickle of some kind, we can take a tablespoon of brine and we can, and then we introduce that to the mushrooms. I'm really looking forward to this because now we're going to combine the umami of a mushroom with the tartness of a ferment. So that's something to think about that it seems complicated, but it's not. Um, long beans are an amazing thing to pickle. And what's nice about them is you grow these, you know, beans that are about three foot long and you can just basically set up a little gauge on, you know, put something on your cutting board, see how long to cut them and grab them in bundles and just cut into that size. And then they fit perfectly nice and straight into like a pint or a quart jar. And they're delicious. Anybody that's ever, if you like dilly beans, that's a really popular thing in the South. Take green beans and basically pickle them like a dill pickle. If you like those, you will love lacto-fermented beans. Now, I will tell you with beans, you want to push your salt more toward at least 2.5%, uh, sometimes 3% of the brine, and you can just do the math on that to figure it out. And uh, it, it, they, it, it, may, it takes a little bit more effort to get them to, to, to ferment right. But it, it's not a big deal, and, and you probably would be fine not pushing it higher, but that's kind of a best practice. They also tend to sometimes get kind of limp when you do a fermented bean and some other things like pickles, just plain old pickles can as well. Um, we'll talk about how to fix that in the troubleshooting section, though. It's not hard. Um, and then one more thing I wanted to talk about today. I, I got two emails recently about this very subject, and I'd posted a picture somewhere online, probably on Nostra, of me eating a big pile of bratwurst with some fermented sauerkraut on it. And somebody said to me, well, Jack, I, I, I love bratwurst and sauerkraut. I think it's delicious. I'm thinking, well, freaking eat it. Go eat it, right? And, but then I kept reading and what they said is my, my issue is I don't want to eat cold sauerkraut on top of my bratwurst. And this guy grew up in a household where they made bratwurst or, you know, like roast pork and they stewed it in the sauerkraut. And that is delicious. I don't I don't discourage. But, you know, his point was, if I do that to the sauerkraut, I lose all those probiotics. I lose all that beneficial bacteria, which is the reason I'm interested in this in the first place. It's real simple. Whatever you're cooking, get it nice and to the temperature you're ready to serve it at in a pan. Kill the heat. Throw some sauerkraut on top of it and stir it through with the heat off. 
you'll just bring it up to about 100, 110 degrees. You, if it's really hot food, put it on top of the hot food. But I find that still leaves the top really cold, and I don't care for that either. Will you kill some of the bacteria? Probably. Will you kill it all? No. You know where lactobacillus kind of goes ape shit with reproduction, like an ideal temperature for maximum reproduction? About 100 to 110 degrees. Think about making yogurt and the temperature they tell you to hold the yogurt at while it develops. And that yogurt uses the same thing, lactobacillus. So you can warm something like a kimchi or a kraut or something you want to eat with food that you don't want the cold, hot contrast, which can be nice in other things. Like I mentioned the daikon. Well, like a, a, a pickle made of daikon and carrot. Right, it's very Asian, but, but I'll tell you what, cold and crisp like that, it's delicious on a taco. I mean, it's flat delicious on a classic taco, and that contrast is good, you know, that cold, hot contrast. So there's places where you want it and where you don't. But I just want to throw out, you can warm a ferment without killing all the bacteria. And then the other thing is, how much do you need? So if you're that worried about it and you throw it in there and you cook it a little bit more than you want to, Drink a tablespoon of the brine, and you will load up on on the stuff. You don't have to you don't have to get it every time where you're getting an optimum thing either. All right. So, um, the basic process is pretty simple. We introduce salt to the food, and we want either enough liquid to come out of the food to cover the food, or we make a brine and we pour the brine over it. We put it into some sort of a container. And the easiest thing to use that most people already have are common ball jars. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound like I'm being like an absolutist or something, and I'm really not. But I don't buy or use ball jars that have small mouth openings. I have some because they ended up here one way or another. You know, sometimes wives buy things without checking. Um, so they exist, and I use those mostly for dry goods. But I do nothing but wide-mouth jars because it makes everything we're talking about doing and anything else you would do with them easier. I see no advantage to a small-mouth jar at all. So a wide-mouth ball jar, pint, quart, half-gallon. And if you ever want to make a little bitty thing with like a half-pint or something, go ahead. But those three sizes will do just about anything. And quarts are kind of a really great size to work with. Again, when I do sauces, I try to make a, 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 as much of it as I can at one shot. So um, I, I stick to the uh, to the larger quart and half gallon size for those. I think it really makes a lot of, of sense to have a canning funnel or three around the house. They're super cheap. They're made out of plastic. They fit the small mouth and the wide mouth both. You know, beyond stuff like we're talking about canning and pickling and all, I use those all the time. When I open a new bag of coffee, I buy whole bean coffee, mostly from uh, our three folks that support the MSB, Nicole Sauce with Holler Roast, Food Forest Farms, Brian Norton, and uh, My Thai Coffee. And when I open up a bag of coffee beans, there's all these ways. Take the bag and do the, I take a, a ball jar. I take the lid off it. I throw the canning funnel in it and I dump it in the jar and I put the lid on it. And is that perfect? It will last long enough to get through a pound of coffee and keep it fresh. So I think those make a lot of sense uh, in general, but that's it is not, if you're looking for some sort of 
complicated process here. The, the reality is this is so simple. Just don't be afraid. Again, millions of illiterate people do it every day without killing themselves. You can do it too. Um, once you have it, once you have it into the fermentation vessel, let's say a jar, I'll give you a simple rule. And if you do this rule, 99% of the time your ferments will come out really good and you won't have any problems. Keep it under the brine and everything will be fine. It rhymes so you'll remember. Keep it under the brine and everything will be fine. None of the food should be sticking up out of the brine, which is the liquid. Now, if you're doing something like a sauerkraut and you just stuck it in the jar, trust me, do not add water to it. If you're using something like a sauerkraut, it's going to pull so much moisture out of there. And it doesn't seem to make sense, but if you fill it up with extra brine, when it starts pulling it out of the cabbage, it will overflow the fermentation vessel. Okay? But if you are pouring a brine onto something, Make sure it's under there, and we'll talk about some things you can use to make sure that happens. If you do that, almost almost nothing can go wrong. Um, I do want to talk, though, a little bit about how do I take a recipe and actually execute that recipe and know that I'm making something. Let me explain what I'm, where I'm trying to go here. I'm not saying this so you don't kill yourself. You're not going to kill yourself doing this. Okay, and as we get to the last segment today, you'll see why it's just not going to happen. It's more of if you read a recipe and it tells you to use a tablespoon of salt for whatever you're doing. And you then are using one form of salt, like I said earlier, and the person used a different form of salt. It would be good to have kind of a known quantity that you can rely on. And that's, again, about 17 grams of salt would be a tablespoon. Factoring in that, that now it doesn't matter that you're using a different salt than I used. And so I think one of the best tools that you can have in your kitchen for a variety of reasons is a good kitchen scale. Now, I used to recommend one that's still in the T-SPAS catalog, but it's out of stock and it just doesn't look like it's coming back. So I did some research, and this one has... Tremendous number of great reviews, 74,000 reviews. It's Amazon Basics. They're 15 bucks. So would I go buy a kitchen scale just so I could do lacto-fermentation? No. Would I not own a kitchen scale? No. I would own a kitchen scale, and then I would use it for lacto-fermentation. There's so many different things you can do with it. Here's what you want in a scale, though, in my opinion. You want, and I don't know any that really don't have them anymore, all these features, but you're looking for the ability to tar, which is to basically put something on there and, and factor it down to zero. There's a lot of reasons for this, but some things would be like if you were making a recipe, again, probably not for many here, but it said like X ounces of this and Y ounces of that, you could set up a bowl and start adding it to it until it went up to the number you were looking for. You could zero it out and add the next ingredient. That's really nice. Um, you can zero out any container and then you can add to it and get your quantities. This is a great one. It should also weigh fluid ounces and milliliters and grams or ounces. And this one does all of those. And again, it's 15 bucks. There's a link in the audio notes today. So I definitely recommend that you, you have one of these for general kitchen use. And if you're trying to replicate a recipe, just go with that formula. When somebody says a tablespoon, use 17 grams. 
or use a tablespoon if you want to. I'm just trying to help you get closer to the result you're looking for in flavor. Because, again, I'm not worried about you killing yourself. The worst thing that's going to happen, you're not going to use enough salt. It's not going to ferment. It's not going to get tangy. It's going to stink, and you're going to throw it away. You're going to use too much salt. It's going to taste like shit, and you're going to throw it away. We're talking about a quart or a pint or at most a half gallon here. It's not that big a deal. You'll learn from the experience, and you'll do it again. That's that's. And Aaron says, if you're not weighing your coffee, you're doing it wrong. Well, I don't weigh mine. Now, I have a, a scoop, and I make it exactly the same. Pat Rohrman told me, he said, well, you're a reloader and you reload even manual scoop reload so you can do it. Yeah. If you have, if you know what you've got with your coffee, I think you can make great coffee anyway, but I wouldn't fault you for weighing it, Aaron. I, I wouldn't. Um, again, two to 5% is the salt amount that you're looking for in a brine. If we're not just putting salt onto the vegetables itself, we're going to make a water brine and pour it in a tablespoon or 17 grams of salt to a quart of water will get you right at 2%. And I think that's fine for most things and the way I feel about salt with a curing process. I want enough salt to provide the protection necessary that I know I'm going to get a good ferment, but I don't want any more than I'm going to like eating. If I have a fermented product and I think it needs some more salt, as long as it's well fermented and it tastes right, I can put more salt on it. I can't pull it out. But go for that 2 to 5%. I've never done a brine at 5% in my life. The highest I've ever gone is 3%, which you can figure out how to do real easy at 17 grams, right, is 2%. Then you add half of 17 to 17 and round it off, and there's your 3%. That's the highest I've ever done. And I've done it for beans, and I've done it for straight pickles. And it helps to go a little higher in salinity to keep the pickle crisp. But I'll tell you a solution to that in just a minute anyway. Start with something simple. I just kind of crapped all over sauerkraut and pickles as an entry ramp, but only because some people don't like it. And so then they don't do it. But if, assuming you like it, assuming you can eat it, it's a great, honestly, sauerkraut is the easiest and most dependable ferment you can do with one thing that people tend not to do added to it to keep it nice and crisp, but I'll tell you how to do it a bit. And the beauty of doing a sauerkraut first is then you have a starter culture that you can use for things like mushrooms that we talked about. Or when I do salsa, I want it to really kick off. It, it tends to get a little um, softish if you don't get it to kick off really quick. So I'll always do a pitchback. And you can make your own sauerkraut and do this. Let's say you've been up till now, you've been buying sauerkraut, but you're buying natural sauerkraut, not a vinegar-based sauerkraut, not a canned sauerkraut, a living culture of sauerkraut. Um, if you're buying that, it better be in the refrigerated section of the store, or it ain't what they say unless you're at like Old Bill's Country Hick store or something like that. You can use the brine out of that. The other thing you can use is you can use a brine out uh, or a, a, some whey out of some yogurt. If you have real yogurt, not fake yogurt, and you want an unsweet and you want just a plain quality yogurt, like something that you would make Lebna or yogurt cheese out of, if you open the container and you see a little bit of whey on the surface, a little spoon of that into your ferment will kick it off really quick, too. Um Use use the best, highest quality produce you can for this. If you are picking stuff from your garden and you have some stuff with some 
you'd eat it, but it's starting to go a little bit bad or whatever. Skip that. Skip that, in my opinion. Or at least cut those spots off of it. And if you're going to do a fermentation, I think it makes a lot of sense. Get everything ready to go. If you're doing it from produce, you're going to pick for optimum results. Go to the garden. Get your produce. Bring it in, process it, and ferment it as quickly as possible. And I'm not getting into like doing like fermented sausages and stuff like that today. That's the same thing with meats. Get the meat processed, cooled down, and get it into fermentation as quickly as possible. Does this mean that you should not go to like a farmer's market or something and, and use those things in ferments? No, not at all. I'm just saying if you have the option, if you have the option, it's probably best to be as fresh and quick as possible to get the best results from your ferments. I plant garlic, but I don't grow a lot of garlic. The heat here and the conditions, mostly I'm growing scapes is what I'm growing with garlic. So I, I buy garlic and I use it all the time. I don't grow a lot of onions either, except for the green onions. And if I'm using onions, I'll go to the store. So don't think I'm saying not to use store-bought product or not to use farmer's market purchase product. I'm just saying if you can go quick from the garden to the ferment, that that's your best practice. And uh, if you want a book on getting started, um, I have what I consider to be the single best beginner's book for lacto-fermentation. It's called Fermented Vegetables by Christopher and Kristen Shockey. I've had this in the T-SPAS catalog for at least five years. And th there's a couple things I love about this book. One, even some of the little things that I'm going to show you today, like some of the fermentation lids and all, they'll tell you you don't need it. They're right. You don't need it. But it makes your life easier. And for some people, it gives them the confidence they need to do it in the daggone first place. But they'll, they'll tell you the most minimalistic way to do things. They'll give you the procedure. You'll start looking at all these. And there's, there's 100 plus recipes in this book. The recipes are great because they give you ideas. You might be like, I never thought of fermenting that before. I should try fermenting that. But what you'll realize is when you start reading the recipes, they all pretty much, other than changing the input ingredients, they all say the same thing. And I think it kind of, for some people, will help you mentally unstick from this idea that you need to have somebody telling you what to do with everything that you do. I think part of why we think this way is we equate in our minds is homesteaders, preppers, etc. Canning and this. This is not canning. So when you're canning, especially low acid things that need to be pressure canned, what does everybody say? Use a known recipe, right? Well, somebody had to come up with that recipe in the first place. And with canning and pressure canning, it's like meats and stuff. There's certain rules you can follow for how long and how much pressure, etc. And, and that would be a good idea. With this, this is not the same thing. You're not going to give yourself botulism. That's the big thing we worry about. When you have a highly saline solution with acid in it, you do not get botulism. So you'll notice that we're not sealing things tightly up with this. We're allowing off-gassing to occur with, with you know an airlock or a loose lid or something like that. So don't sweat this at all. Um one of the things, though, is to keep it under the brine. Well, this is another product that I really like. Um, I have a different version of it that I have here. I'll show you mine in a second and explain why I'm recommending these now. All these are is some solid pieces of glass. Glass is fairly dense. It's fairly thick, so they've got some weight to them. And they have a little 
like a little knob that you can grab onto to get them out of a jar. And when I bought mine, they didn't have anything like this yet, so I didn't get it. What these do is they sit up on top of your ferment, and they hold everything underneath it. Now, um, these are like 15 bucks for four. I'm going to tell you that you don't need these, but you might want them. That's why I included them. They're in the show notes today. The one that I have is, if you're watching the video anyway, it's smooth. It looks like a hockey puck made out of glass, and that's pretty much what it is, but I wouldn't use this as a hockey puck. It might be kind of fun to see what would happen. Um, the, the, the thing I don't like about these is sometimes they're sitting on top of your ferment. Maybe even the jar was fairly well packed, and they're right up on the top and doing their thing. And as that ferment pulls the moisture out of the vegetables, they kind of change their spatial relationship, and it sinks down a little bit in the jar. And then so you stick like a butter knife in there and you go to get it out and it turns sideways and it sinks to the bottom. And that can be kind of annoying. Now, what do I do if that happens? That one sits in the bottom of the jar until the jar is almost empty. I've got four of them. I seldom have four ferments going at the same time. It's not that big of a deal. What I figured out to do is take a little suction cup, like something you put a little sign in a window with or whatever, clean, a little bit moist, and you pull it right out. And so since I started doing that, I haven't lost one in the jar. So it's hard for me to justify buying the ones with a little thumb grabber thing on the top of them. But four of them for 15 bucks, I'll probably break down and do it. And that way I can review them for you guys as well. But what else can you use? You, if you find the right size, you can literally go outside and find rocks, which is what everybody did before we were manufacturing stuff like this, okay? And you just simply clean the rocks. But it was outside on the ground, so was the vegetables. When, it, when you clean a vegetable, basically, we just rinse them off. We're rinsing dirt off. We don't want to scrub things. This is a bacteria-driven process, we don't want to sterilize. I, I, I all the time people say, sanitize your jar. Then take the cabbage you just cut out of the garden and stick. This is what I do with my jars. I turn the, the, the faucet on and I put it on hot and I rinse the jar out, shake the water up, dump it out, and I use it. That's it. That's all I do. What am I going to go sterilizing a jar that I'm about to introduce bacteria to for? And since I've done this, my life is easier. I do it with fermentation for lacto-fermented vegetables. I do it when I make mead, when I make wines, when I make beers. I have stopped trying to sanitize and sterilize everything. Again, millions of illiterate people do this every day all over the world, and they get great results. And they're healthier than a lot of people in the first world because of the way that they're eating. So I, I highly recommend that you just take that simple approach. But, yeah, you can use a rock. My grandma, when she used to make crock pickles, she, 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 she didn't have a crock, right? The way this even happened is my grandmother wasn't really big on doing this. She did a lot of, like, the canned pickles and stuff like that out of her garden. My, my, uh, my Chuchi Beretsky, and Chuchi's like an adopted aunt for Ukrainians. My Chuchi brought me some pickles that she had made, and they were in a jar. Like, These are amazing. I told my grandmother about it. And grandmothers in a Ukrainian family, they get jealous Anybody else's shit can't be as good as theirs. You can't like her pierogies better than mine. I didn't say I like them better than you. I said they're good, but mine are better. I mean, it's it's like that. So she's like, no, I know how to make these things. So she just took a big bowl, like an old corningware bowl, and she did basically what I said. It was dill 
and garlic and cucumbers and some grape leaves, which we'll get to in a minute. And she made a brine and she put them in the bowl and she poured the brine over them. And she took a plate that was a little bit smaller than the diameter of the top of the bowl. She put the plate upside down on top of them to keep them under the brine. She said me go get a rock. She rinsed the rock off so it wasn't nasty and set it on top of the plate. And she put a towel over the bowl so that flies and shit wouldn't go in it. And she set the bowl out in our shanty. Shanty's another northeastern kind of coal miner area thing. It's like a shed, but it's nicer. And we had like an outbuilding. It was actually the, the, the original house on the homestead that when they built the new house, which was built around 1885, became the shanty. It even had an ups, a, 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 a cellar and an attic. It was a pretty cool building. But she just le- and it's the middle of summer. She left it out there. She's like, seven days you'll have your pickles, and they'll be better than Chuchy Ann's, right? They were the same. I didn't tell her that. I said, yeah, Grandma, yours are better. That's how simple this is, right? And and I, she wasn't in there with a scale or anything either. She threw a few tablespoons in and mixed it up and dumped it in there. Just free yourself to give this a shot and get that book, and it'll make you feel a little bit better. And if you want these extra things, um, again, I think they work really well. I own some of this stuff. And I do like having some form of an airlock. What a lot of people will do is they just put a regular ball jar lid and they don't completely tighten it so some of the the, the off-gassing can come. It works. It works. I have found that there are some really simple airlock systems. This is the one I used to recommend. They're still good. They kind of look like a baby bottle. They're made out of silicon. And you put that on the top of the jar and then you put your ring around it. And what they have is a one-way valve, the way they're designed, if there's air pressure from underneath, it can slightly push open where if it was a bottle and the baby was drinking, it can push air out, but air can't get in. These work really good. They're made out of silicon. I'm about to show you the product that's the item of the day today. I like it better. The reason I've I've kept these around, though, is one, I own them and they work really good. Two is because there are some people that no matter how many times you explain to them that something made out of plastic is BPA-free, They freak out about plastic. If that's you, these are made out of silicon. These are the new ones that I'm recommending now. I bought a set of these, and I absolutely love them. Uh, They're called Easy Fermenter Wide Mouth Lids. They have a one-way valve on them. They screw directly onto the top of your fermentation jar. And... They allow, you know, they seal completely, but they allow off-gassing because while those lactobacillus are consuming those sugars and turning them into lactic acid, they are off-gassing. And, you know, you're not, even if you completely tightened it down, you're not going to get exploding jars unless you went totally crazy with something. It's nowhere near the, um, call it violent process, that alcoholic fermentation is. It's much more gentle. I just think it works better overall. And four of these things are 15 bucks. The other thing I like about them, you see they have a little tab on them on the side. What that tab's for is when you're opening that jar, you put thumb pressure on it. It helps you to open the jar. We've all had jars get stuck. They're hard to open, et cetera. The way this is designed, it's not just a torsion thing. Because the, the lid's plastic, it'll actually cause the lid to flex just a little bit. So if it's, if it's stuck because it's on like some salt or something like that, it'll work for you. 
The other thing I like about using a plastic lid during the fermentation process is salt corrodes metal. Yeah, salt corrodes metal. And so everybody's had the jar of something in the refrigerator. Like you have to get three people to unscrew the damn thing. And a lot of times it's that metal corrosion and it, it binds on the jar. I've had a couple that I've opened. I was kind of afraid to push, like I'm going to break the jar here. Uh, by the way, if you want something that will always open a jar for you when it's like that, but is not a, you know, a unitasker, they make oil filter wrenches that look like a big pair of channel locks, and they'll fit perfectly around a jar lid, a wide mouth one anyway. And you can have somebody hold the jar with a towel in case something does break, and you can, if you can't open a jar with that, just throw the jar away. But I really like these fermentation lids. They're, they're just great, in my opinion. Let's talk about some troubleshooting and some things that can go wrong. Common issues are, one is that we didn't keep everything below the, the brine, and some stuff got up above it, and you'll form like a white mold-looking slimy stuff on top of a ferment. Best practices, throw that ferment away. I can tell you I've never thrown a ferment away because it's got a little bit of mold on the surface. Skim the mold off and go on with your life. That That's what I personally would do. And it, it does make sense to maybe keep some 2% brine in the refrigerator or the shelf or something like that. Or if you have to do that and you drop, you can just top it back up. But that's kind of the most common thing that people will have is that they'll end up with some white mold or something uh, like that on the surface. And as long as you have a good fermentation, it is not a big deal. It's not a, it's it, it, how many of you guys have ever pulled cheese out of the refrigerator? It's got a little bit of mold on it. And you're like, hell with that. This is a half pound block of cheese. Still, I paid a lot of money for this. And you just cut the mold off and go on with your life. That's what normal people do with cheese. By the way, if that mold's not into the cheese, it's service mold. You cut it off and go on with your life. Well, that's what to do here. Um, Another problem, and this is the most common problem, the fermentation goes well. It got tangy. Overall, it tastes good. Texture is shit. This is very common with cucumber pickles, crock pickles, what have you. And so you make this pickle. It looks good. It tastes good, but it's just not crispy. All you need to correct that is, well, all you need to prevent it. You can't, Once it happens, it's happened. There's no Viagra for that pickle. It's a limp pickle. It's going to stay a limp pickle. There's nothing you can do. You can either eat it or you can discard it. Right? If you don't want it to happen in the first place, this also works really well with keeping sauerkraut nice and crunchy, including long-term, is tannin. And if you have some tannin in the ferment in the beginning, the duration of how long it'll stay nice and crisp and delicious is longer as well, especially when stored in refrigeration. Where do we get tannin? Well, you know, we take stuff from outside when we make fermentation and we turn it into something delicious. Dry oak leaf is a great source of tannin, just a little bit of it. Um, the most commonly used, and if you own grapes, the best thing to use is some grape leaf. And it, I like grape leaves because they serve two functions, in my opinion. Okay. One, I usually pick two or three grape leaves off one of my grape plants. And a grape leaf is bigger than the diameter of a wide mouth jar. 
So then I'll layer two or three of those on the top and I put my weight on top of the grape leaves. And if a little bit of the grape leaf sticks up out of the jar, I don't worry about that at all. Cause when I'm done with that ferment, I am just going to go ahead and, uh, and, and throw those leaves away after the ferment's done. They go out to the compost pit or the worm farm, right? And now I'm introducing lactobacillus into the compost process. So that's awesome as well. Uh, but that works really well. If you don't have grape leaves or you don't have oak leaves or something about oak leaves bugs you, green tea. I would not use uh, a black tea. It's too assertive in its flavor. A pinch of green tea into your ferment, you will never even know it's there. And that will up your tannin. And then you can buy you can buy tannic acid or something if you want to. But all I've ever used is oak leaves or I've also used, again, grape leaves. Grape leaves are what I use most of the time because mostly when I'm fermenting, there's leaves on the grapevines. And it's worth having a grapevine just for the leaves, in my opinion. Another thing that you can do to kickstart ferment and to get that cap on there is if you have some cabbage, and you're not going to ferment that particular cabbage. You take one of those outer leaves. It's all infused with wonderful lactobacillus because cabbage and lactobacillus go. That's why it's such a popular fermented thing. They just go together. They grow together. They, they like each other. You can take that cabbage leaf and you can form it over the surface and put your weight on top of it. And it will help keep everything. Because when you're fermenting something like a relish or a salsa, little bits and pieces have a tendency to want to float up to the top in that highly buoyant salted water. That's why it so much wants to float because you think about the Dead Sea. You can go lay in the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake and you float like a, like a boat because of the density of the salt in the water. So those both work really well. And anything with a good tannin content will keep your crispiness factor up a great deal. A sign of a fail, like just it doesn't work at all. It didn't ferment. Once you start getting close to how long you want that ferment to go and you're, you should be able to taste the brine and it should have a sour taste to it, a sour pickle like taste. That's how you know you fermented. And, and this is very subjective. How far do you want to go with it? It's not going to go bad, right? It may go beyond what you want to eat, but it's not going to spoil. That's the whole point. When it gets to the point you want it, that's where you want to stop the fermentation and move it to a cooler place. The fermentation doesn't actually stop. It just really slows down. Okay. If it doesn't develop that flavor, then something's wrong and it probably should be discarded. Or if it smells foul, not sour, foul. The human nose, the human olfactory systems like this is not a good thing. If it smells like garbage, just throw it away. If it doesn't start or it smells bad, throat, that's about it. You're not going to have a ferment fail to ferment and not know something's wrong. You just, and then one of the things I like, I want to bring these uh, lids up again. Again, I think how long to ferment before it goes in the refrigerator or a cool pantry or something like that is very subjective. It's something people decide for themselves. But a lot of times when you're reading recipes, it'll say seven days. Five days, six days. I think it's a good thing to know, especially if you have multiple jars sitting on the counter. You make one a day, one three days later. How long has that been there? We all know we forget. These lids, this is really cool. They have a little date ring on them. And, I mean, this isn't going to help you figure out it's been there six months. It's through the month or the prior month. You set it to the date of the month, and then you know how many days it's been fermenting. 
I really, really like that about these lids, and that's why they are the item of the day. So as I wrap up today, I'm going to do some Q&A. I've got like six questions. Anybody's got a question, unless you already asked it with all caps, get it in the live feed now because I'm about to do Q&A as soon as I get done with talking about our item of the day today. Um, but this is the item of the day today, and you can find it at the survivalpodcast.com. Everything I put on the screen today is in the audio notes. Those will go up, as always, about 30 minutes after I finish here today. Uh, I really love these things. I have a different product that I showed you, the pickle pipes. I don't have anything against them. Just once I tried these, these became my go-to. They're four for 15 bucks. They're on sale for like 20% off today. It fit perfectly with today's episode, so I ran them as the item of the day. But I also want, because we didn't get to do a show yesterday, I put these out on social media, and they went in the Daily Mail. Totally different subject, real quick here, flies. Now, I ain't never had a problem with flies with a lacto-ferment, but I, this year I've had trouble with flies in my house. Usually what happens around here is about April, we get rains, April showers, and we'll get a fly tick up outside, and by the time we get into late May, the flies, you know, there's flies around, they're not gone, they're just not a problem anymore. This year we got a lot more rain and we had come off two years of drought, and I think it caused a fly explosion. We had friggin' flies all over our house. We watched TV, and there's four flies climbing on the TV, and they're just annoying, and they're buzzing in your ear. And I want to get rid of them, and I don't like poisons. These things are made by Black Flag. These guys are not a permaculture company at all. But this is a permaculture um, principle in action. So one of the permaculture principles that we use is we identify the intrinsic characteristics of living things in our homes and in our land. And then depending on how we want that thing to either go away or increase or change or whatever, we utilize that analysis of the intrinsic characteristic to our benefit. That's what these do. There's no poison in them. There's no bait in them. They go, they, they, they're on like a, a triangle with openings on the long side. They have sticky on the back. You stick them in a window, right? You stick them in your window. And when you stick them in the window, they, I'm going to actually hit, um, might have a little bit of audio for a second, but I'm going to kill the audio on it. The video I did with the write up. So they sit down in the corner of the window. And what do flies do when they get in somebody's house? They go to the window. We've all seen them sitting there trying to get out the window. They're stupid. They're flies. And then they start circumnavigating the window. Well, when they get to this thing, they look in the hole and they go, hey, what's in there? They go in there. Guess what's in there? Stickiness. So they stick. Once one or two go in there, you know how flies are. There's another fly in there. I better go see what he's up to. And it starts to smell like fly, I guess, to a fly anyway. And in a second, you'll see in this shot how effective they are. Um. We've set these up, and I was skeptical. And the next day, my wife and I looked at each other and said, well, I don't even see any flies in the house. And we looked inside the dadgone thing, and a bunch of nasty flies in there. And I'm not going to say they've completely eliminated the flies, but boy, did these things work. Uh, they were yesterday's item of the day, and there you can see the shot that I wanted you to see. Lots of flies in there. It breaks that cycle and once you break that cycle, everything just gets better. So two items of the day today. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, take some of your Q&A. Um, start now. Let me go back to the comments to make sure I didn't miss anybody. So far, I have six questions. If you have any more questions, the time to get them in is now. 
Let's go here. And they're not all questions. Uh, first of all, Anarchy did a $6.66 uh, super chat. Dude, thank you for that. I really appreciate anybody that super chats me, zaps me on Noster, uh, does podcasting 2.0 using Fountain or another app and, and sends us sats or, or boosts us. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Um, one way to guarantee you're going to get your question answered is Super Chat, even for a buck, because my system automatically starts those uh, for the end. Just saying. K-Bonk says, what's the difference between the outer leaves of the cabbage and kraut that you noted? So I said to use the outer leaves of the cabbage. All of it works. All of it works. The most bacteria, the natural occurring bacterium will be on the outside versus wrapped up inside the densely uh, densely packed head of the cabbage. So people have a tendency when they get cabbage to rip those outer leaves off and throw them away. There's nothing wrong with them. And it makes a lot of sense to use them, especially in kraut, especially in kraut. Um, next person says, Bill says, do all fermented foods work with keto or it depends? It depends. An item that's not keto will not become keto because you put it into the fermentation process. That said, what happens in the fermentation process? Well, the sugars are converted into lactic acid. So the, the total sugars are lower in a lacto-fermented product. But this is also how I look at it. I don't sit down and nom on a giant bowl of fermented food. To me, these are condiments and accoutrements, right? So I like to take you know, a couple tablespoons of sauerkraut and put it on, you know, three or four bratwurst. That, that's how I use it. Or salsa, generally, I'll do one of like my egg and cheese wraps or my uh, uh, pork panko uh, tortillas or something like that. And I make, a, you know, like a breakfast taco and I'll put my fermented salsa on that. So it's already better. Most of the things that I ferment are things that are go for me to eat anyway. Again, you know, not... Not shell beans. I do, you know, string beans or long beans or cucumbers and tomatoes, peppers, etc. So you can eat enough tomatoes to get a lot of sugar, but it's a lot of tomato, right? So since I'm using them that way, it doesn't really factor into my daily decision making about what I'm going to eat or not eat. Uh, Wild Unikitty says, does the liquid over sour cream work too to kickstart ferment as yogurt does? I don't know that much about sour cream. I would bet that most commercially made sour cream is using something like a vinegar to sour the cream, but I don't know that. I I just realized when you asked that, I don't know jack diddly crap about modern commercial sour cream. If the sour cream were made with a lacto-fermentation process, then the answer would be yes, but you would have to look at the ingredients. And this is what you do with yogurt. So it's what you would do with sour cream. I have not read a sour cream label in a long time, though. You want to see active and live cultures on yogurt that you're going to do any sort of fermentation with. If you're going to use a, a store-bought yogurt as an inoculum to make your own yogurt, you want to see that. If you're going to take yogurt and strain it and thicken it and let it age overnight to make lebna or yogurt cheese, active and live cultures and you don't want other you want milk 
and active in live cultures pretty much be the only ingredient. So you would read that label to determine that, but I don't know what the label is going to say. And I don't know if like some sour cream is a go and some is a no go, but with yogurt, you don't want to use something with fruit and stuff in it to make a Levna anyway. And I, so I, I'm not a big yogurt guy. So pretty much the only time I buy yogurt is to make yogurt cheese and that's it. And then I always use the whey uh, that comes out of that in my ferments if I have to be fermenting at the same time. K-Bong said, was there a reason I only saw it done in clay crock pots when I was a kid? It's the most common thing that people use. And I think there there may be some mythology around the idea that you don't want light touching it. And if you were sitting in a sunny spot, which is probably not a great idea, there might be something to that. But I've made so many ferments in clear glass jars that I don't worry about. Now, there is something to ceramics, especially thicker ceramics are insulative, so they create more temperature stability. But if you if you go back not that long ago in human history, there was an awful lot more ceramic vessels than glass ones. Glass is a complicated modern process. We've gotten so good at it that glass is cheap. Glass used to be pretty expensive stuff. A glass blower was an in-demand, high-level, like you know, like a we call today like a middle-class profession. Not that long ago. So anybody can make a vessel out of clay, glaze the clay, and you're good to go. Like, I mean, it is one of the most ancient containers that man has ever created. And I think there's people that lean toward the ceramic clay type situation because it was always done that way. But there's not any real reason that you have to do it. And K-Bonk also says that pickle is called relish. So I think that's what he what he's talking about. So I talk about you make some crock pickles or whatever, and they're soft. Yeah, there's nothing that would prevent you from chopping it up and using it as a relish or even incorporating it with something else. I will say I know I'm a jalapeno fiend, but I think just like I said, garlic goes in everything. There's not a lot of fermentation where I don't include some chili pepper of some kind, even if it's just one or or so. Uh, And I even do that with vinegar pickles. One of my favorite things to do as far as just pickling stuff with the easy button is if I buy a good quality pickle, like a vinegar pickle, as I'm taking the pickles out of it, I'll throw other stuff into it. I'm doing that right now with my mouse melons, which, yes, I'm going to lacto-ferment some of those as well and, and try them side by side. Uh, but mouse melons, also known as cucumelons, are little bitty members of the cucumber family. They're tiny, and they have marks on them that look like a striped watermelon. And they're really cool. They're about the size of like a small olive. And I have some really great dill pickles that I had bought just to have them. And uh, I liked them so much, I started pitching these things. And the whole thing's now almost full of the mouse melons. Well, what I did is I took two uh, dry, uh, dehydrated uh, red chili peppers or jalapenos. And I just threw them in there just to add some spice to it. So I I don't know that I would use a dehydrated thing in a lacto-ferment, but I don't know that it would hurt either. Uh, David just gave me a super chat for 10 bucks. Thank you, David. And um, he says, thanks for the great content and information. I'll definitely be trying the grape leaf trick. Yeah, try the grape leaf trick. So anyway, we've wrapped up. I don't have to do closing segment today because I already kind of inverted the whole item of the day thing. But do remember, you can always help us out. 
doing your online shopping, starting at TSPAS. If you like the content, you want to make sure the show's all around. Then uh, always around. The, the number one way you can do that is become a paying member of the Members Support Brigade. It's cheap. How cheap? Fifty bucks a year. Fifty bucks is fifty bucks, and I know that seems like a bunch of money, but when you work it out to per episode, I did the math a long time ago. It's eighteen cents an episode. Eighteen point three cents an episode to be exact, based on our average number of new episodes per year. Here, eighteen point three cents. So if you think you get more than twenty cents of value out of this show, you can just look at it as reciprocating. But the deal is you get so many discounts that you'll make money. That that was my goal from the time I established the MSB is to make it profitable. Uh, I think that if you hate me, it would probably, but you're in this world, it's probably still going to make sense to be a member. And if you use things like cannabis products, like CBD or some of the other now legalized cannabis products, that alone will pay for your membership. If you buy really great coffee instead of crappy Maxwell House, and you deal with companies like Mai Tai and Food Forest Farms and Holler Roast, then just the discount on the coffee for the average coffee drinker will pay you back over a year enough to recuperate your investment. So if you are not yet a member, uh, please consider becoming a member sometime soon. And I really appreciate all of you that always have done. Again, this is a big week for us. We hit 15 years as a podcast. We're now podcasting into our 16th year. And I do have four. I think it's four. I, I checked today. Maybe an order came. I got four tickets left to the 15-year anniversary party. And uh, you get them or you don't. And there should be a link in the video notes below, and there will be in the audio notes today as well. Uh, okay, one more question before we go. LKH Fun says, how long will a container of fermented food last in a cool place? It depends. First of all, what do you mean by cool? There's cool and there's cold. In a refrigerator, easily a year. But what does last mean? So there's a tartness, a sourness, and there is eventually, even when you get a crisp ferment, a textural change in the food where it starts to go more and more limp. And again, there's no Viagra. There's no reversing the process here. Once the pickle's limp, pickle's limp. I try to finish my ferments in two to three months, and I... Don't start the next ferment in that thing until I can look at the jar and go, yeah, that's going to be gone. Okay. Um, but I mean, fermented pickles back in the day were year round available thing. I remember, I still remember a, an old general type store where I grew up where they just had a giant barrel full of these pickles and God knows how long some of those things were in there. You just went in with tongs and took out what you wanted and put the lid back on the damn thing. Um, but I think most people would find that at a year, you won't necessarily like the taste, even though it will still be okay, fine, safe to eat, et cetera, uh, what have you. And uh, Richard, real quick before we go, says, my membership saves me just with what I buy at Safe Castle every year. That's awesome. And they've been a sponsor of the show and a supporter forever as well. Anyway, guys. It'll last longer than probably, it will be safe to eat longer than you'll probably want to eat. It is a simple version of that answer. Give this a try one more time. Millions of illiterate people every day in the world do this. People who have no idea how to read or write have been doing this for tens of thousands of years. Well, not tens of that, for thousands of years. Probably right at about 10,000 years. Right about the time we discovered uh, agriculture and salt and civilization, people started salting things. It is a very, very safe thing to do if you follow the instructions. If you have any concerns, get the book that I recommended today, Fermented Vegetables by the Shockies. 
it's a great book and it'll give you that confidence. And if you're not sure about something, look up a recipe and don't be afraid to alter it to suit your taste. With Aspen Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. You don't have to be another face in the crowd. Yeah.